Notes from America is supported by Future Hindsight, an award-winning podcast that shares big ideas about participating in American democracy beyond voting but short of running for office. Join host Mila Atmos for stimulating and incisive conversations with citizen changemakers on topics ranging from gerrymandering, policing equity, and voting rights. In this election year, Future Hindsight offers an unaffiliated perspective into what's at stake and how citizens can make an impact at the local, state, and national level. You'll always come away with something hopeful. Tune in every Thursday to get engaged and stay engaged. Listener supported. WNYC Studios. It's Notes from America. I'm Kai Wright. It has been a summer of extreme heat right the way around the globe. July was the hottest month on record worldwide, thanks to a warming climate caused by human behavior. We know this much. But I only recently understood the extent to which those of us living today in the United States are uniquely responsible for the ongoing damage to the planet's climate. I spoke to science writer David Wallace Wells about this fact back in late 2021, after he wrote an essay in New York Magazine that offered some back-of-the-envelope math about the debt that we, as a country, owe the rest of the world for our emissions. I've been thinking about that conversation this summer, and I want to share it again now. David pointed out that half of all carbon emissions ever produced by humankind have been put into the climate since 1996, so well within my adult life. Yeah, I think we often conceptualize climate change as a legacy of the Industrial Revolution, which means that we think of it as something that started in like 1750 or 1850. But well, first of all, the industrialization of the world as a whole really didn't begin until the middle of the 20th century. So, you know, up until 1850, the lion's share of all global carbon emissions were produced by the UK. And from the perspective of the present, basically all of it has been done since World War II. I think the figure is something like 90% of all carbon emissions ever produced in the history of humanity have come since World War II. And that means a lot of things. Um, it means that the crisis is a relatively recent creation, and it means that many of the people who are most responsible, um, both at the sort of individual level, at the corporate level, and at the national level, are um, alive today and often in power. So fully a quarter of the damage that's been done to the climate has been done since 2008, since Joe Biden was elected vice president. So we're really still doing this damage very much in real time. It's not just that we're not doing enough to clean up the mess that was left behind by our grandparents. We are creating the mess. We're creating a much bigger mess than our grandparents, and we're still not doing nearly enough about it. Now, it's important to keep in mind in thinking about all that, that because carbon hangs in the atmosphere for centuries and maybe even longer, um, That carbon, the carbon that was produced in the U.S. in 1995 or was produced in China in 2003, that carbon's not gone. It's still warming the planet. It is the reason that we have a climate crisis today. And unless we take it out of the air, it's the reason we're going to still have a climate crisis for centuries to come. Um, So we often think about carbon emissions in terms of future emissions trajectories. You know, how can we get China and India and sub-Saharan Africa on a, a cleaner path? Those things are really important. But we're at the point we are today because of emissions that we've already produced in the past. Some people call them historical emissions, some call them legacy emissions, and they're not going to go away unless we do something about them, which means that it is still American responsibility with the responsibility of the global north 
that you know, it's, it's our fault that we're in the bind that we're in today. Well, in the our fault part, and we're and I and we are going to talk some about sort of where, how you do this math and and what it what could come from it. But just to dwell on this, you, you know, another stat you give is uh, that that one transatlantic airline ticket yields more emissions than the average person living in sub-Saharan Africa generates in an entire year. And I, it made me wrestle with sort of how we d- think about the the balance between individual level accountability and responsibility and response versus, you know, the fossil fuel companies level of responsibility and response and just sort of how we as individuals then enter into this conversation. Yeah, I think in a country like the U.S., it's easy to think that there are basically two teams. There's like a team science climate, which is basically progressive or liberal. And there's a team denier conservative that's like a fossil fuel business that's sort of on the other side. And those fights are real. Those disputes are real. And, you know, um, even down to the level of individual behavior, there are certain groups of people that are behaving much more responsibly when it comes to climate change and others who are behaving much less responsibly. When you pull out and think about it in the global context, you know, it's really just about what country you're from and how rich you are. Um, and the huge gap is between the countries of the global north and the countries of the global south, not between liberals and Republicans, um, not between environmentally conscious people and environmentally fatalistic people. Um, you know, this, these gaps are just so enormous. The average American emits something like 20 times the, um, the average Kenyan or Ugandan and maybe more than 100 times um, the, what the average person in, say, Mali or some of the most poor countries in the world um, emits. And so from the perspective of the global south, like whether you supported Green New Deal, whether you voted for Joe Biden, those are relatively trivial aspects of your sort of carbon profile. Mm. Um, from the perspective of the global south, just about everybody who's um, not very poor in a place like the U.S. or Western Europe is just doing an enormous amount of damage. And we think, oh, we can behave a little more responsibly. We can eat a little less meat. We can buy an electric car. Those things do help, but they help off of a baseline of a very, very brutal baseline in which basically every American is just um, doing quite a lot of damage to the stability, well-being, livelihood, and you know potential for future human flourishing um, in the developing world. Along these lines, but but challenging them a bit, is there somebody on Twitter that says that, um, you know, given the fact that Big Oil's delegation at COP26 was larger than that of any country, shouldn't COP be changed to the Conference of Petroleum, our conference of polluters to better reflect reality? Um, so it's, you know, uh, at the same time that we are all individuals, there are these big structural things that have sh- that showed up, um, even at this very conference. Oh, I mean, absolutely. I don't want to minimize the, the ability of the fossil fuel companies. Um or the, the moral um, cowardice that's been shown by not just American political leaders, but political leaders all around the world over the last generation, who knowing you know, everything that fossil fuel use was doing to the planet, nevertheless sort of continued on in a business as usual way. I think there's a real differentials. I don't mean to suggest the average American is you know, as guilty as Rex Tillerson or whatever. I just think it's important to understand that we are all also operating still within those systems, which have been designed to benefit us and are built on the back of fossil fuel use. It is now the case that you can look around the world and see paths of possible greener prosperity. Like that is the wonderful promise of renewable energy, which is now cheaper in 90% of the world than dirty energy is. But for all of human history, um, wealth has been created basically by the use of fossil fuels. And so countries and people are rich because of the use of fossil fuels, which means because they're polluting or even poisoning the planet. You know, we have a culture now where 
especially in the U.S. We tend to regard wealth as sort of clean, all these beautiful people with their clean skin and their fit bodies and <laughs> healthy diets. But the truth is, it's, you know, f- from a climate perspective, it's really the opposite. Wow. You know, wealth is extremely dirty. Mm. Um, poverty, as much as people in the U.S. regard it as dirty, is from a climate perspective, really quite clean. Mm. Um, and we are living high off the hog here in the U.S. and across Europe um, by basically imposing pollution on parts of the world that, that can't deal with it. Now, we're going to deal with it, too. But it's the equatorial band of the planet, the developing countries of the world who are expecting the most intense impacts, who are already experiencing the most intense impacts. And of course, both have the least resources to deal with those impacts and also did the least to cause the problem in the first place. It's Notes from America. We'll be right back. Hi, I'm Alexis Ohanian. You may know me as one of the co-founders of Reddit, but more recently, a large part of my identity is being a father to my wonderful daughters. In my podcast, Business Dad, I hope to open the conversation about working parents a bit. You'll get to hear from a wide range of business dads, from Rain Wilson and Guy Raz to Todd Carmichael and Shane Battier, to find out how they balance being a dad with a successful career. Business Dad is available now, so be sure to listen and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. So, David, what are some examples of the things that people are already experiencing in places that are not actually responsible for the destruction of the climate? What What, what are some of the things that you talk about in the article? Um, there are, you know, droughts, intense flooding, um, much beyond what anybody has experienced in sub-Saharan Africa or really across South Asia. You have um, unprecedented heat waves. Although the truth is we actually know a lot less about the heat impacts um, and some of these other climate impacts as well, because climate scientists don't even really study the the global south of the uh, the developing world nearly as much as they study the global north. So um, our data is much more piecemeal. But all told, there are huge problems with using economic projections as total measures of this stuff. But I think to some degree, they're useful because they do sort of collate all of the impacts. And you're seeing already across the global south, many countries having their GDPs reduced by 20, 30 percent from what they would be without climate change already today. And if you project those impacts forward, you know, several decades, you're talking about many of these countries um, potentially losing the very possibility of economic growth at all because of the combined impacts on on agriculture, you know, and drought. There's also a relationship between temperature and violence, so it, it, it tends to create um, more conflict both within states and between states. You know, it's it's really the whole gamut. Um, one of the other activists I spoke to in the in the article, an Indian activist named Disha Ravi, said to me very bluntly, like, in India, we, we have the whole climate crisis. It's not one impact. It's like, you want floods? We got those. You got droughts? We got those. You got water shortages? We got those. Um, and in fact, India is, um, according to some uh, research, expected to shoulder the burden of about a quarter of all global climate impacts this century, even though, of course, it's it's just one country. It, and is it also the case that you, you mentioned that there's research showing that this is already making poor countries poorer? Is it is the research showing that it's making rich countries richer? Uh, there's some research to suggest that, um, particularly in Scandinavia, Canada, and in Russia, that the impacts are already are positive and, and will continue to be positive. You know, it makes some farmland up there more productive. 
people, in fact, are more productive economically when they um, at certain temperature levels. So these are countries that are quite cold and they're being made slightly warmer. The U.S. is already suffering a little bit um, and is expected to suffer actually somewhat considerably this century if warming trends continue, not like people in India or Uganda or Kenya will, but um, at a different level than the countries of Northern Europe, we think of often as our peers will, and much more in line with the countries of the Mediterranean, who are, again, also kind of suffering already from climate impacts, although much smaller ones than those felt um, in the developing world. And David, in your article, you do try to do some math to get an actual number for what wealthy nations owe for all of this damage and, and having profited from this damage, as you point out. And it's kind of complicated. And you say you do this as more of a provocation than a real accounting. But still, it adds up to $250 trillion. Why that number? Well, I started with the fact that we know you know, we, we talked to earlier, carbon hangs in the air for centuries, so it doesn't really disappear. What Any damage that's been done, any carbon that's been produced, it's still up there. It's still on the ledger. We know the total amount of carbon, and we can divide it country by country. Um, the U.S. is responsible for about 20% of all global historical emissions, which is about twice as many as the country that's produced the second most, which is China. Um, and China, of course, has somewhere between three and four times as many people. So on a per capita basis, we're at something like 10 times um, the Chinese impact. And many of the countries that follow down that ledger are um, have done even less. So the U.S. towers above all of the other countries in the world in terms of its responsibility for this crisis. So that's the, like, how much carbon did we put into the air tabulation? And then the other part is, how much would it cost to take that carbon out? Um, this is a little bit complicated, but I tried to take seriously the real meaning of the term reparations and tried to figure out what the dollar... Um, amount would be to actually repair the climate, not just to pay for the damage that's been caused, but to actually undo the damage that's been caused to the atmosphere. And that may sound a little far-fetched, but actually, first of all, we do it all the time. Trees take carbon out of the atmosphere and turn it into oxygen. Um, but we also have technology that can do it or promises to do it at significantly greater scale. There are a lot of problems with this technology. It's There are limitations. It's extremely expensive, much more expensive than avoiding putting carbon in the atmosphere in the first place. But we do have those machines, they do take carbon out of the air, and they do store that carbon permanently. And while they're doing it now for something like $500 or $600 a ton of carbon, most researchers expect that within a decade or so, with, especially with public support, that figure could fall to about $100 a ton. So I use that figure, $100 a ton. Um, and just to clarify, because with public support, meaning that the government could buy the, 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 the carbon itself. Yeah, unfortunately, you know, there's no market for the captured carbon at this point at all, which means for any of this tech to go forward and for any of this um, repair, climate repair to take place will require um, public support, um, public investment. It's possible that some markets will develop, but probably not at the scale that we're talking about if we're really hoping to actually undo the damage that we've done to the, to the climate and take uh, eventually reduce carbon concentrations below where they are now. So all you have to do is multiply $100 a ton by the number of tons that we've produced. The U.S. has produced 509 gigatons, which is 509 billion tons. So you multiply 509 billion by 100, and you get $50 trillion. That's the U.S. debt. Um, you can do that for all the individual countries of the world, or you could do it for all the countries of the world as a, as a whole, which it gives you the figure um, that you mentioned earlier, which is $250 trillion. And that is obviously a lot. But one of the appealing things about even entertaining this thought experiment is that Carbon capture technology like this, carbon removal technology like this, 
doesn't have to take place in the next 10 years, which means we wouldn't have to pay that $250 trillion bill by 2030. In fact, it would be designed to operate um, in an ongoing way, possibly over the course of a century or more. And if you were talking about funding an effort like this at that time scale, then the dollar figure shrinks considerably. A lot of activists point out, absolutely rightly, we don't want to lean too much on this tech. We don't want to trust in it too much um, because it's often understood to be a sort of an invitation to continue burning fossil fuels. And we wouldn't be able to do the work of climate repair and climate restoration. And it is, in fact, the fossil fuel companies, it's something that they point to. They say, oh, we'll happily do this. Yeah. When they talk about their net zero targets, they're almost entirely talking about just funding carbon removal in the second half of the century when they assume it'll be very cheap. Um, there is that moral hazard problem. We do need to get to net zero um, to really entertain this project because if we're still putting carbon in the atmosphere, it's going to be that much more difficult, that much more expensive to continue taking it out. And yet, if you're thinking about you know engineering or mobilizing a political response to climate change, not just on the next five or 10 years, which is how most advocates have thought over the last couple of years, but engineering a response that would take place over 50 years or 100 or 150 that really does change some of the logic. It does mean that the political forces that could govern systems like this could be very different than they are today and may even be engineered in a, in a much more progressive way to benefit the people chiefly in the global south, although poorer people in richer parts of the world as well, um, rather than to benefit the fossil fuel companies, which is how the system is set up today. Let's sneak in one caller, Aaron in Queens. Aaron, we've just got a couple of minutes, so if you can just quickly get, get your question or our, our, our thought out. Yeah, so it's more of a comment. Uh, I just basically, I just, I think there's just a ton of hypocrisy in this whole conversation in that we all talk about the fact that the climate crisis is a major issue, yet, you know, I'm sitting here driving down the FDR right now, and we're all, you know, trying to get home day to day. We walk into Starbucks and we get our cup of coffee and we, and we throw, you know, our coffee cup in the garbage can, and no one is changing their day-to-day life. Um, so, like, in the end, like, we talk about the fact that Okay, like corporations have to make a big de- uh, a big change, but most people in the grand scheme of things are not changing anything in their lives. Thanks for that, Aaron. And and David, if I can add to it as we wrap up. So we have the scientific silver bullets out there. Yeah, it's complicated. It costs a lot of money, but you know, you make the case that we can do something about this. But much like what what Aaron was saying, the problem is human beings. It's not the science. It's it's our ability to work together on this. Yeah, I think, but you know, even talking about the renewable rollout, um, the challenges there, the obstacles there aren't um, scientific or technological. They're political. And that's how I see the question of hypocrisy, too, which is I think um, that charge is often overused because really what hypocrisy is, is the gap between individual behavior and collective desire. And I think in many ways, that's what politics is for. It allows us to um, allows us to be better people together than we would be as individuals. It's only when politics fails that we depend on individuals to do all of the moral work on their own. And I think that's asking too much of people. I think absolutely Aaron is right on that. But if we had a politics that truly worked and understood the collective benefits of decarbonization, we wouldn't have to ask individuals to um, to shoulder the burden in the same way that we, we don't ask individuals to donate their paychecks to the local school board. We have taxes to do that. Um, we should have systems like that um, oriented around the stabilizing the climate's future and securing a prosperous, um, generous, equitable world for us all for generations to come. We don't, but we should. That's not a failure of individuals. That's a failure of our politics. That was climate journalist David Wallace-Wells talking with me in 2021. 
We're going to continue the climate conversation next week by talking about what's been working. Because enough with the doom and gloom. What can we do? I hope you'll join us for that conversation too. Notes from America is a production of WNYC Studios. Follow us wherever you get your podcast and on Instagram at Notes with Kai. I'm Kai Wright. Thanks for listening. And I will talk to you next week.